tonight as we turn our attention to uh, the book of Nehemiah. And the book of Nehemiah has uh, immense practical value, and in particular, observing uh, this individual who handles adversity and difficulty and presses forward in his service toward God. And uh, the amazing things that we're going to see him do in this, I think, is highly encouraging for faith. Uh, and as we go, as well as going to be a lot of uh, imagery and pictures to us about uh, the great Savior that we serve and some of the foreshadowing events and actions that, that Nehemiah takes. Uh, so that's what we're gonna, going to be doing. Um, some of the unique things about this book, it was uh, earlier this year, we were in the book of Ezra, and at chapter 7 in the book of Ezra, you have an interesting uh, change in that you start reading this I, I and uh, me begin to speak these first person pronouns as Ezra himself is talking through the circumstances that are going on. You're going to see the same thing in this book. In Nehemiah, you're going to read this, this individual who says I and me. And, and so you, when you read that, be thinking of Nehemiah, this individual uh, that we're going to study uh, this evening. And, and we're going to talk about how Nehemiah begins uh, this whole sequence about uh, what he is going to go through with preparation in prayer. So we're going to talk about uh, prayer tonight as we see it in the life of Nehemiah. Now, in the first three verses of Nehemiah, we were kind of given the, the setting and told what's, what's going on. We're told in chapter 1 of Nehemiah and in verse 1 uh, that he is in the capital uh, of Persia, Susa. Now, Susa was the winter capital. That's uh, where you went uh, to avoid the weather, uh, and so you would be there as the as the winter capital, be more favorable there, which already gives you maybe perhaps a little bit of an indication that he may be an important person. It is interesting that uh, Nehemiah withholds exactly who he is till a little bit later. He just tells you that uh, he's in the capital of Susa, and verse two tells us that his brother, along with some of the other people who have been living in Judah since its destruction and the restoration that had happened under Ezra, they return and they give uh, Nehemiah some terrible news. It says there in verse three that they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had been, who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. Now, I, I don't believe that what they are reporting to Nehemiah is the event back 140 years ago when the Babylonians came in and destroyed the temple and destroyed the city of Jerusalem, and here it still lays in ruins. That really wouldn't be breaking news for his brother to come and say, hey, 140 years have gone by and it still looks the same. We, you get a sense that in the efforts to rebuild Jerusalem, there has been the opposition that we read about in the book of Ezra that has caused the tearing down of the walls. And now things are destroyed by fire and the walls have been broken down even further. And so after all of this time in being able to re return to the land, things look pretty bad. In fact, we're given a nice date in there at the beginning of verse one when you read about the month of 
Shislev in the 20th year. That doesn't really click into you a time frame, but uh, scholars tell us you're talking about 445 BC, which now sets us 90 years after the first return under Zerubbabel. So 90 years have gone by in that, and it's uh, about 10 to 20 years since Ezra's been there as well. Ezra's been a part of the work and doing the work. And so while Ezra's been active in doing the work, we see that the remnant has been dealing with problems. And that's what verse 3 simply summarizes. And it says there that those who had survived the exile, it says it is great trouble and shame. It's been very difficult for them. And the book of Ezra has recorded that. I want you to notice how Nehemiah deals with this news. This is his first response to distressing, troubling news. It says there in verse 4, As soon as I heard these words, I sat down, wept, and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. As soon as this terrible news comes to him, it says here that Nehemiah turns in prayer. But one of the things that I want you to get a sense of is that the text is not telling us that Nehemiah's first reaction is that he is mourning and weeping and he prays and that happens only one time. You will notice in verse 6, it says in the middle of verse 6 that he is praying day and night for the people. So as we read about this prayer here in just a moment, it is not just a one-time prayer about how things are going, but Nehemiah says that he's been praying day and night about this. In fact, he's been praying not only day and night, but we're being told here that these events are happening over about a three to five month span. We're told in chapter two, verse one, a new month uh, is, is laid out there is in the in month of Nisan, which tells us to our calendars, three, four months have gone by before Nehemiah does anything. So I want you to get a sense of what is happening is Nehemiah hears these words and he spends months, day and night, praying about this situation before the Lord. As that happens, I want you to notice the content of his prayer. Verse five. And I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the utmost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. A, a, a fascinating prayer. 
Because you will notice that what Nehemiah does as he is praying day and night for months is he continues to start with the character of God. And so important that we are mindful of that. You see him say it in verse 5, that this is the Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commands. And so here he is praying the very character of God and saying, God, you are full of covenant love. You keep your word. You keep your promises. You always do what you say. He's going to use that here in a minute with this prayer. But he's tapping into the very heart of God and the very character of God and who he is with steadfast love and faithfulness, a great and awesome God. The second thing you'll notice that Nehemiah does is he confesses sin. He he is pictured here in doing some interceding. He prays confessing the sins of the people. He prays confessing the sins of his father's house. And he even prays concerning his own sin. I have sinned. My father's house have sinned. We as a nation have sinned. We stand before you corrupt. We are worthy of judgment because of what we have done in our sinning. And so he does not hide from those sins, but rather confesses them before God. And even notes in that by saying, now you made a promise when you spoke it to to Moses. And you said that if we were unfaithful, verse 8, you would scatter us among the peoples. And that is what has happened. Where is Nehemiah? He is in Persia. He is not in Jerusalem. And so here he is in Persia and he offers us prayers. And now you said if we were unfaithful, we would be scattered. And here we are. But notice how he uses that when he points out and says, but in verse 9, but you also said, That if we return to you and keep your commandments and do them, you would gather us as outcasts from even the far reaches of the earth, even from heaven itself. And you would bring us back to the place that you would put your name that I've chosen. And so ultimately, this is what he is praying for is for success. And you notice verse 11. So let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight in your name. Now, what is he ultimately asking for? Verse 11, and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. I want you to notice that the wheels of Nehemiah are turning right here. That it is interesting to me that what Nehemiah does is he, he, he is coming before God and he is praying to God about this circumstance. But he doesn't pray and say, boy, I sure wish somebody would do something about this. I hear this terrible news back in Jerusalem and the walls are torn down and is burned with fire. And so, God, why don't you do something and send somebody to go take care of this matter? You will notice that you, as you come to the end of verse 11 that you get the picture that Nehemiah sees himself as a solution. As he says here, give me success before this man. Now, at the moment, you don't know who this man is. But in chapter 2, we're talking about Artaxerxes, the king of Persia, chapter 2, verse 1. And so he's going to use an opportunity that he has. And so he's not looking for other people, somebody out there do something. But God, I'm going to confess our sins and trust in the character of who you are in your steadfast love. And give me success in this moment because I have an opportunity. I have an opportunity before the king. 
And I want to be the one to be able to do something. It is a beautiful moment. I submit to you that it is parallel to uh, Nehemiah having this Isaiah, here am I, send me moment. That here is Nehemiah saying, I can be a solution. I can be someone who can do something here. Give me success as I go before this king. Now, why would Nehemiah be concerned about that? Keep in mind that in Ezra chapter 4, we read that it was under Artaxerxes that all of those problems were happening. And it was under Artaxerxes that the work was stopped. And this is the guy who's on the throne right now. And so here is Nehemiah saying, God, I need you in this moment. I need you to give us success so that this can happen. And now the end of chapter one tells us what the opportunity is. You will notice it says at the end of chapter one, now I was cupbearer to the king. Now he reveals his unique status, cupbearer to the king. He has direct access to the king of Persia, ruler over most of the known world at that time. King Artaxerxes is on the throne, and he, this is no small guy. This is Nehemiah the cupbearer. Now, for me, sometimes I think of, well, the cupbearer was probably somebody you didn't care about because if he drank the poison, you know, no big deal. There he goes. Off he falls over. We're all okay. That's not the way it was. The cupbearer was considered the most loyal person that you would have in that court. He was extremely trusted by the king. He would be so trusted that we read about from some of the Persian writers that they would even be entrusted with financial affairs and would be trusted advisors to the king. And so he has a very important place before Artaxerxes. And I want you to keep in mind, with this privileged position, he is going to be talking about how he can be the solution. What can he do to be granted success to be able to do something about the situation in Jerusalem. And so with this amazing access to the king, now the story unfolds. Chapter 2, verse 1. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Really interesting to read about. So here's what the Persians did as you bring this cup before the king is that the cupbearer would take a ladle and he would dip it into that cup and then he would bring it to his own hands and pour it into his hands and taste it and then they watched <laughs> but also what you would have is he would be able to taste if something was amiss if something's in there that doesn't taste right he's going to be the first to alert it and so that's why he's such a trusted person that he's supposed to say something. And so here he is. He's taking the wine before the king and he has clearly tasted it. And verse one says he has now given it to the king. And he notes something at the end of verse one. Now, I had not been sad in his presence. And there's a good reason why you don't reign on the parade of kings. <laughs> That's just not a good idea. You leave your personal baggage at home and you stand before the king and you reflect the king. And he wants you to be smiles and happy because, hey, you're in the service of the king and you don't come in depressed. You come in and it is smiles and sunshine and you are happy to be here. 
And that's what he's saying. I have never come in before the king in any other way. Verse 2. And the king said to me, Why is your face sad, seeing that you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of heart. Cupbearer comes in with the wine, and the cupbearer doesn't look happy. And the king says, What's going on? You'll notice the end of verse 2 says, Nehemiah is terrified. You usually died for something like that. You do not come in and go, oh, I'm having a really bad day. Oh, tell me your feelings. That's not how it worked. And so he is terrified now in all of this. Why are you sad in my presence? Verse three, I said to the king, let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad when the city The place of my father's graves lies in ruin and its gates have been destroyed by fire. That was a gutsy thing to say. Why shouldn't I be sad? Because the place of my home is in utter ruins. Notice what Artaxerxes says in verse four. So what are you requesting? Here's your chance. So what do you want? Since you've come to me in this sadness, what exactly do you want? And notice what Nehemiah does. Verse 4, so I prayed to the God of heaven. Here he is yet again, preparing with prayer. I submit to you that I don't think that Nehemiah said, give me 10 minutes and I'm going to go into this other room over here and I'll be back with you after I get done praying. I think this is a pretty quick prayer that he has, but it is the contents of what he's been praying for months. Day and night for months, we are told, he has been praying that God would give him this opportunity and to give him success before this man. And God, you are a faithful God, full of steadfast love. And when my chance comes, you give me success. And you can imagine Nehemiah's prayer right here is, Lord, here it is. (laughs) Lord, here it is. He's asking me what I am requesting of him. And so Nehemiah prays. And it says there in verse five, and I said to the king, if it pleases the king and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. And the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, how long will you be gone and when will you return? Interesting. To show that Nehemiah is a valuable, trusted, hard worker in this court that the king wants to know. So how long am I going to miss you? How long is this all going to take? He's going to be like, oh, good. You know, I'm getting a new cupbearer around here. This is, you, you get a sense of the, the integrity of Nehemiah here in this, in this conversation. And so verse 6, it says, So it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, let letters be given to me for the governors of the province beyond the river and let, 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 they may pa- let me pass through until I come to Judah. And a letter to Asaph and the keeper of the king's forest that he may give me timber and make beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple and for the wall of the city and for the house that I shall occupy. And the king granted me what I asked for the good hand of my God was upon me. I love in this moment that here is Nehemiah and he says, send me. 
I'm going to be the guy to do this. Send me to go and do the work and give me the supplies that I need and give me the letters that I need so that this can be a success so that I can go and rebuild the work. And you have to love the wording that's given you at the end. What Nehemiah recognizes is exactly what Ezra recognizes. It's the good hand of God who is bringing this about. That is the good hand of God that King Artaxerxes, the one who had prevented the work earlier in time, is now allowing this work to go on to rebuild these things that have been torn down and destroyed and set on fire. He now says, you go ahead and go back and the good hand of God was upon him. And that plays out really to the rest of what this chapter is all about. Is It is interesting that what Nehemiah does is he does not come back with big fanfare and, and pomp and circumstance and, hey, here I am, Nehemiah, cupbearer to the king, really important guy, here's on the scene. I want you to notice he comes back with the king's letters and he's trying to be careful about how he's going to go about this. You will notice in verse 10 that we are told that when Sanballat the Horonite, Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant heard this, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. Already there is a little bit of a buzz. The arrival of Nehemiah and he is coming for the welfare of his people. He is coming to do them good. They don't know what he's come to do, but he is coming with Persian letters. And you can imagine he's coming with supplies. And they're already the opponents are getting upset. We are going to read about these guys a lot in this book. These two are troublemakers. And already they're upset. How dare we have somebody coming to seek the welfare of these people? And so the opposition, it says, is greatly displeased. And it says in verse 11, he goes on to Jerusalem for three days. But verse 12 says... He goes by night. He goes by night. He takes a couple of men with him. Verse 12. And I told no one what my God had put into my heart to do for Jerusalem. There was no animal with me, but the one on which I rode. Basically, just imagine Nehemiah riding his donkey, you know, no fanfare. Him on a donkey, couple guys with him. No, 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 no fireworks. And he's going around at night. And we're told in verse 13 and verse 14 and verse 15 that he just starts inspecting the city. He just starts looking at the walls. He looks at this gate and it's torn down and he looks at the next gate and it's wrecked and torn down and he checks the walls and he's seeing everything. He's just assessing the situation. Then you will notice in verse 16, it says, and the officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing. He's just kind of doing this secretly. And I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials and the rest who were to do the work. Verse 17, then I said to them, you see the trouble we are in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. He comes into the people and there's encouragement. You see our circumstances. You see that the walls have been torn down. You see that the gates are ripped apart. You see the smoldering of the ruins. 
And he tells them, let's put an end to this. Let's put an end to the shame of the city that God had named. Let's rebuild these walls. Let's put this city back together. But I want you to notice that it's not just a motivational speech. It's not just him, you know, kind of doing a Tony Robbins, hey, come on, let's get up and we can all do this moment. Notice what he says in verse 18. And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good and also of the words of the king that had been spoken to me. It's not just, hey, guys, we need to get to work. But he's saying, you won't believe what happened. I went into the king one day and I actually revealed that I had a sad face. And rather than him killing me, He asked me what I was so sad about, and I told him about the circumstances here, and he said, you can go back and rebuild the walls and rebuild the city. And so here I am with supplies and with letters to do that very thing, which shows that the good hand of God is with us. We can do this work. Clearly, God is with us for this task. You can imagine how Nehemiah is telling that story. For months I've been praying for this moment. And God has answered this moment. And God has come in. And he has responded with kindness. And notice this is what we see in verse at the end of verse 18. And they said, let us rise up and build. And so they strengthened their hands for the good work. God is with us. We can do this task. You would love... For these kinds of books and these narratives and these accounts to say, and so they built the walls and everyone lived happily ever after. We've got a lot of pages. (laughs) And one of the reasons for a lot of pages is verse 19. And when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant and Geshem the Arab heard it, they jeered at us and despised us and said, What is this thing you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? It's already started. All we've said is, hey, we should get to work. And here it comes. Here comes the naysayers. Here comes the opposition. Here comes the problems. These three guys just rise up and go, ah, you guys are rebelling. You guys are a bunch of troublemakers. You guys are a bunch of problems. But I want you to notice their response. Verse 20. Then I replied to them. The God of heaven will make us prosper and we, his servants, will rise and build. But you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. Here's a response. You can jeer us all you want to, but God's going to cause us to succeed. You can say everything you want to say, but God is going to give us the the ability to do this. And you have no part of this. You scoffers and mockers, you're not going to have any part of this. But God is going to bring us to success. He is the one who is going to accomplish this. All right, let's just talk about a couple of things in this this great opening to this uh, amazing book that, that is given to us. One of the things that I think is so amazing, and as the title of our lesson, is talking about preparing with prayer. And what you see Nehemiah doing is prayer at every turn in these two chapters. As soon as he hears the news, 
He is praying. And what is he praying about? Opportunities. And as soon as an opportunity arises, what is he doing? He's praying again. And I think it's a beautiful picture that you see him preparing with prayer. You see his prayer that leads to action. And then as he's praying, he's looking for the good hand of God for success. And I, I, I summed it up like this. You see him praying for success. You see him working for the success. And you see him looking for the success. It's it's a great thing. He doesn't sit back and pray somebody do something, nor does he go running off to do the work without God. And he also recognizes if that there is any chance of success, it's got to be by God's hand. That is, I think, such a powerful picture about prayer. And it's so easy To get going in our days and get going in our schedules and get going in our weeks and get going and going and going. And we forget to start with prayer. And we forget that we need to begin with prayer about what what we think we're going to do or what we are looking for or what we are desiring or what we are hoping for or what we are seeking. And you see Nehemiah really exemplifying this, that you see him starting with prayer And continuing with prayer, because friends, it is only by God's good hand that we would ever have any kind of success. And this is what the scriptures are always telling us, is reminding us that it is only by God's hand that anything tomorrow will have any success. Remember the reminders, you know, don't be foolish to say, oh, tomorrow we will do thus and so and thus and so. It is by God's hand that we live, move and breathe. And so here is this reminder that Nehemiah grasped, even though he's fully aware of the need for Jerusalem to be built, he is putting it in the hands of God. God, you are the one and we are going to be praying to you for success, praying based on his steadfast love and praying upon that faithfulness and praying ultimately that God would bring a success. And what is the beautiful thing that you see is when Nehemiah gets there and he gathers all the people, he says, I just want you to open your eyes and see how God has been moving these pieces together to bring us to this very moment so that we can do the work that God has given us to do. How many times do I have to say, if I had 30 more minutes, I would talk about. So I'll, I'll let your minds run there. But just think about how much God has done in your life as an individual And if you've been here a pretty long time to think about how much God has done for this church, for us as the people of God doing this work in this city. God has done great things. God's hand has been everywhere and his good hand continues to be upon us. And we must rest in that knowledge and be grateful of how God has cared for us and pressed us forward and pressed us forward and pressed us forward. And it's an exciting thing to read these words and say, Let's rise up and build. Let's keep going. Let's not stop and continue to depend upon our God to accomplish that. But my one other picture, and my one other picture is this. We're going to see this a lot in this book. And we've seen it a lot in so many of our Old Testament studies that so many of these people reflect 
what Christ would ultimately accomplish. It is not by accident that we are reading about Nehemiah who is seeing the problem, interceding on behalf of the people. The text even specifies he is coming to act for the welfare, for the good of the people. He is leaving the place of authority. Here he is at the right hand of the king and coming to Jerusalem to be able to do the work that is before him, to restore the people and restore the city. You see him coming to remove the shame of the people because here is their condition. They are broken down by sin and Nehemiah has come to restore them. In fact, how fascinating that he is riding into Jerusalem on an animal as he comes to see the city. It is an amazing picture of who we were, would ultimately look for in Christ. But the one thing I want you to really think about in parallel is when you look at the life of Jesus, you see a life that is absolutely prayer-filled. Everything he does starts with prayer. He leaves his disciples to go to desolate places to pray alone. When people are going to rise up and try to make him king, he'll step away from the crowds and go to his father. Before the most critical moment of his work, as here he is, about to be or take on an arrest and be betrayed, He's praying. He's even pleading with his disciples to pray also because this is going to be such a great trial, not only for himself, but also for them. You see in the life of Jesus just prayer and prayer and prayer and prayer. And you're seeing that picture here is that it starts with prayer and it continues with prayer. And I asked at the beginning, so what do you do when you get bad news or troubling circumstances or hard times. And the first place to start is prayer. Pray through your sadness. Pray through your hardships. Pray through your fears. Pray through the difficulties. Pray through the obstacles. Prepare with prayer. And that is what Nehemiah does as a beautiful example. And it's what our Lord teaches us to do when he was here on the earth as well. Let's go to God in prayer as we come to a conclusion. Heavenly Father, Lord, what can I ask but accept forgiveness for as often as we can fail to start and to continue in prayer to you. Forgive us for how many times we take up plans without talking to you, that we go forward with decisions without speaking to you, And forgive us for how many times we act like life and control is in our hands rather than yours. And so, Lord, I pray that not only you would forgive us of that, but that you would remind us of the necessity of prayer. That, Lord, we do need you every hour. We need you every moment and we need you every step. And, Lord, I pray that you would help us never forget our need for prayer And that whatever we undertake in this life that we would prepare for with prayer. Lord, I pray that you would take us up like Nehemiah. 
and allow us to be a people who can fill in the opportunities that come before us in such a way so that it would be glorifying to you. Lord, help us to see circumstances and situations in such a way so that we can be solutions in your kingdom. Help us to live a life so that we can be people who are faithful to you, showing the way to you, and expressing our love and devotion for you, Lord. And so, Lord, we pray that we would be those people and that we would always start and continue in prayer every day for the rest of our days until we are home with you. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Now, singing invitation song, we invite you to come to Jesus, to turn away from sin, to be a follower of him with all of your heart. Uh, If you have not done that, we certainly encourage you to think about where you are with God and your walk with him. And it definitely begins by drawing closer to him, your need to see your sin, to confess those sins, repent of those sins, and to come before him desiring to be a servant of his Be immersed in water for the forgiveness of your sins. Can we help you in any way to do that? Won't you come and do that now while we stand and while we sing?